Now we return to our Sunday night study where we have been looking at the Ten Commandments. We've been doing that in conjunction with the Sunday morning series because we saw that Jesus described that He had not come to destroy or abolish the law, but to fulfill it and to spend our time then looking at, well, what was the law, what was given by Moses so that we can see how these things are fulfilled in Christ and what God was truly looking for out of His people. If you remember the backdrop of the scene is in Exodus chapter 19, we're told that God has come to meet the people. In Exodus 19 and and verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And chapter 20 opens with God speaking these words. And we have in chapter Chapter 19, the picture of the the mountain as it is smoking and the the trumpet is loud and blaring and the, the with the trumpet then with the mountain shaking and all of that going on, God now gives these words. And, and tonight, then we're going to look at the second commandment. In the first commandment, God declared that the Lord is the only God and that He alone is to be worshipped. And that first commandment then was focusing on the object of the people's worship. And the second commandment focuses more on how the people were to worship the Lord. You'll notice it in verse 4 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the picture of the second commandment is pretty simple and fairly straightforward. Essentially, you're not supposed to make an idol of any kind. Do not make an image. And I think it is important to note that it doesn't appear to be the idea that therefore Israel was never allowed to create anything. And so they never carved anything and never had any kind of imagery whatsoever. And some of the reasons uh, why we see that is, is based upon some of the things that we're told later on. Like in chapter 31 of this very book, we have all kinds of craftsmen and artisans who make all kinds of different things. And in fact, those people are called upon to be useful in the construction of the temple and the article, I mean the tabernacle and the articles that would go into the tabernacle. In fact, remember that they're the ones that would fashion the cherubim that would be on the very Ark of the Covenant itself. You can even come to the New Testament and you have Joseph and Mary and we find out that uh, Joseph is a carpenter and probably a stone carpenter worker as well. So the idea behind the command was really, I think, very strongly driving at you're not supposed to create any kind of image that was considered some sort of representation of God, nor create some kind of image that you would bow down and worship. That seemed to be the two-pronged thrust of what God is giving. You're not supposed to try to represent me in any way, not by using things that are in heaven or things on the earth or things in the sea or under the earth, nor are you supposed to then take any of those kinds of objects and attempt to worship me, which is what verse 5 then gets at. You shall not bow down 
and, and serve them. And I hope that you'll observe the intensity, really, of the command as, as God gives it there. He doesn't just say, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, but he goes, not the likeness of anything in heaven above, earth. It's just almost like whatever you could possibly conjure, whatever your mind might imagine, or whatever you think you see on the earth or in the sea or in the sky, whatever your eyes may see, you are not supposed to create an image by which that would represent God or that you would bow down and worship Him. And I think the reasoning behind that is is pretty obvious because once you attempt to create any kind of representation of God, you've immediately limited him and degraded him. Uh, You can't quantify or define the presence of God. You can't take a bird and go, okay, that's the true and living God. You've now degraded him. You have denigrated him. You have limited him. And this seems to be the the basis by which God would give this, is that you have taken the splendor and the glory and the majesty and the immensity of God, and you have boiled it down into some kind of image that you have conjured up in your own mind. And of course, this would be then a great insult to the majesty and the might of God. Now, I think what's particularly interesting about this command is it really goes so contrary to human nature. It seems that within us, we have this great desire to have a God we can touch and see. There is just this burning desire to be able to see, tangibly touch this God that we follow. And that's why we see such a difficulty that people who tried to follow God had with idolatry. Is that we want to be able to touch, we want to be able to see. When we have in the book of Exodus, Moses is on the mountain for 30 days and in verse 1 after giving these commands the people ask Aaron to make gods to lead them and that goes to the heart of the issue Moses has gone up on the mountain and we can't see what's going on. We don't know what's happened to him and we can't see this God. And so we need something we can see to be able to lead us. We need an object. We need something before our eyes, something that we can touch. And therefore that would make us feel better. And so that's what Aaron does. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron gives the people what they want. But I want you to consider, I don't believe that there was a single person, a single Hebrew who was standing there going, yeah, we thought our God was a cow. Right? They know that. Why a golden hand sit there and go, yeah, that looks exactly what I thought God looked like. The whole problem is that we desire some sort of representation of God so that it will comfort us or give us assurance that makes us feel better. Ah, there is my God. Now I'm able to see it. Now I feel better. That's all that's happening here. Is that, well, we don't know what's happened. We feel in this great amount of uncertainty and distress because Moses is not here. So give us something that we can look at that can assure us that we have a God who is going to lead us. And so Aaron goes, well, here's the God who led you out of Egypt. And it's like, really? The, the cow? The calf? That's, that's it? 
And so you get a sense then of what the issue is, is that we have the problem in the heart. Is that we desire a God that we can touch and see. And yet this is why God is greatly angered because we are limiting him by doing something this. I mean, think about what has happened here and why God now tells Moses, these are a stubborn people who have quickly turned away from me. And so I'm going to kill them and start a new nation nation out of you because you have taken the glory of God And all of who he is and all of his majesty and fashioned something and said, there's your God. You can't be more insulting to the immensity and greatness of God and boil it down to some object that can be touched. And so I want you to see just kind of the conflict of the immensity and majesty of God. And here we are as humans who desire some, something small and touchable and tangible and want that to be able to be our God. And so Moses then in Exodus 32 makes intercession for the people because they're worthy of God's wrath. Now, I think that this is particularly important because God's message in this command is particularly strong in that you can worship the true God falsely. This is essentially what the command is about. The first command was not other gods. You can't worship other gods. You must worship God alone. The second command now follows right along with it and says, now when you worship me, you better do it right. I don't want you to make images. I don't want you to make representations of me. I don't want you to make images by which you're going to bow down. If you're going to worship me, then you need to worship me the way that I desire. And so how we worship God matters just as much as who we worship or what we worship. That is a really big deal today. We very much have a a society right now that believes that God is indifferent to what we do or how we live or how we worship. And it doesn't really matter that God is basically the menu board at, at McDonald's and you can just pick and choose however you like God and you'll be just fine. And God is being very clear. I mean, first words out of his mouth. There's no other God but me. And there better not be any other gods in my presence and in my sight. And you better not try to recreate me by your hands or bow down and worship me through some kind of object. It's not going to be tolerated by God. I think it is interesting that when the Apostle Paul described all of the sins in Romans chapter 1, as he gets into some pretty deep sins and describing the immorality and the sexual immorality that the people had given themselves over to, one of the things that he points out in how these things began, he describes in Romans 1 verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That drives at the heart of the second commandment. Is that what people do is that they're not satisfied with the immensity of the invisible God and want to exchange that for something they can touch and see. 
And so that's what he says they did. They exchanged the glory of God for something resembling birds and animals and creeping things. And this is, again, drives at the heart of the problem of who we are as humans. If you think about 1 John chapter 3, and he talks about these sins that are there, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Consider how those sins are basically being consumed by what we touch and see. We want to touch it. We want to see it. And if I can't touch it and see it, then I don't want anything to do with it. And here is God going, well, that's not going to work for me. I'm too great for anything that you can touch and see. And even the things that he commissions, like the tabernacle and the temple, these things don't represent God at all. And don't represent who he is and are just a shell of some kind of small nature of trying to give us a picture of how great God is. It is so fascinating to go about the earth and think about the complexity of creation. Think about the complexity of animals that you see. Think about the complexity of the earth. Think about the complexity of space and all that is in it. And God is saying, as amazing as all those things are, and as vast as those things may be, none of those things can represent who I am in my majesty and in my greatness and in my vastness. I think that's pretty amazing. It's pretty shocking. Because here is God going, I made all that and that doesn't represent me in the slightest. And what God then I believe is driving at is the desire for us to desire the unseen and spiritual rather than the physical and the seen. The Apostle Paul speaks that way. That there is supposed to be a shift that we'll no longer desire the things that we see. And no longer hunt after the things that are tangible, but recognize that the greatness and the glory of God and all that is true satisfaction and true joy is found in the unseen and in the spiritual rather than in the physical. And so the second commandment then is driving at that. In fact, you'll notice over in Deuteronomy chapter 4, here is what Moses does. He recounts this scene. And he explains to the people why God did this the way that he did. And it very much drives at the second commandment that was being given. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and in verse 11, Moses says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, and the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Did you catch what Moses did right there? Back in verse 12, he says, the Lord spoke to you in the midst of the fire and he makes the point. 
you didn't see him. You saw no form. You only heard of the sound of words. You only heard his voice. You saw no form. Why? Why doesn't God just go, ta-da, you know, blind them, boom, and there you go, okay, we saw God, and there half of them are vaporized. We go, okay, we understand, we've seen God. Moses explains in verse 15, since you saw no form, there was a conclusion to be drawn. Then beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. There was a reason why God didn't show himself. It's because he didn't want you to try to have some kind of representation of him. To try to put into physical form the majesty and the power of God. You can't do it. So here's what Moses says. That's why you saw no form. That's why you only heard a voice. I think that is particularly interesting because it seems to me what we have is in this time that that is something that is considered so insufficient. And I hope that you consider how blasphemous that is. For when you speak to somebody and say, this is all you need, is the voice of God in your hands. Here's the very words of God. And people go, no, I want an experience. I want to see. I want to touch. And here's God going, there's a reason I didn't do that. I didn't want you to see because I knew that would be idolatrous to you. That's why you only heard the words. You saw no form. You saw nothing of God. You just had what's caused them to be scared to death in the shaking of the mountain and smoking and fire. But you saw nothing because the words were to be sufficient. The words were supposed to be enough. And it wasn't supposed to be that you touched and saw. It was just that God spoke and that was enough. And so that was the warning that was being given there. And I think then this is an important warning for us because there is such a desire that we have to be careful against. A desire to bring God down as if to have some kind of greater experience. This is the problem the Apostle John's dealing with in 1 John. Is that you need some kind of extra experience. You need to have something that happens to you. And therefore that means you are closer to God. And so that happens in all kinds of strange ways. One of the things that I was completely blown away by. When on our vacation we just had, we went to Salt Lake City. And we got to go into... Uh, the visitor center of the Mormon Tabernacle, and we went through all the the touring of that. Uh, oh, wow, huge place! And inside the visitor center, they had an exhibit, and it had a uh, representation of their golden angel Moroni, which is on the top of all of their uh, Mormon temples. And the one who had created that image had a blurb there about what he said, and he said. That he felt no closer to God than when he had made that image. And this commandment's just blaring in my head. <laughs> That's exactly what God didn't want. You're not supposed to try to find some kind of image that makes you think you're closer to God. You're not supposed to have some kind of trinket, some kind of thing that you can touch and see and now go, oh, well, now I feel so much better. And that can happen for us. I mean, go, well, I'm in the church, so I feel closer to God. No, you shouldn't. It shouldn't have anything to do with it. 
It's just a building. God doesn't want physical things to cause you to feel like you're closer to God or have some kind of experience. And yet so often that's what people are drawn to. As they see some kind of object, they have some kind of thing. I'm glad it stopped for a while. I remember about a few decades ago, people were seeing uh, the Virgin Mary on burnt toast and selling it on eBay. And now, now I feel closer to God. You've got to be kidding me. This is exactly what God was speaking against. Says, There's a reason you didn't see me because I knew you would do that. And so just take the words, just hear the voice of God. What God is declaring is the experience of God is in his voice. His words are the experience. You don't need to touch and see. You don't have to have something in your hands. It's just the words. That's all you need. And that's what Moses is doing. Here he is, his final speech. Here he is in Deuteronomy as he speaks these final words. And he's saying, there's a reason there was no form. And he's talking about the next generation. There's a reason there was no form. You have the words. And that's all you need. Now go on in to the promised land. That's the picture of what God is giving here. And this is why he's so adamant in this second command. No images, no nothing. You don't need those things. In fact, that draws you away from experiencing God through his word and becomes an idolatrous situation. This is what brings in verse five is the second reasoning behind all this is he describes a judgment. Verse five, don't bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God calls himself a jealous God. And so often I think we we think of the word jealousy in pretty much a strictly negative way. And there's only, I think, one way in the English where we see jealousy in a positive way. And that's when we come to marriage is that, okay, I am jealous for my spouse and I will not share her with anybody else. And that's what God is saying about saying, I am a jealous God. That God is saying he will not share us with anybody else. You cannot go worship other gods. You cannot give yourself over to graven images. You cannot try to bring God down and make him closer through some kind of item that you can touch or see. But that God is saying, I am a jealous God. I will not allow you to worship other gods or worship me improperly. An exclusive, a demand of exclusive devotion just as marriage. I thought Christopher Wright said this really well when he said, a God who was not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Uh, That's what he said about right. You, You can't have a God that's not a jealous God. It would be a contemptible God. That's the whole point. This is how much he demands this relationship with us. And the hard part for us is to recognize is that God has every right to do that. That God lays exclusive claims upon our hearts and upon our desires and upon our will. And that's what he's saying to these people. I'm not going to share you with anybody else. I'm a jealous God. You can't worship other gods. You can't bow down. You can't think, well, I've got a calf and so that's God and so that'll work for me. I'm not going to share. I'm a jealous God. And again, in our society, we're just not for that. We, we think we have a choice in the matter. And God says, no, you don't. I made you, and so I bear all rights upon you. And so you belong to me. And he has every right to do that. 
And so loving God is worshiping God the way that he expresses. I think we have to hear that. Loving God is the way, is worshiping God the way that he has expressed. I want to read to you a little bit of John Calvin because what he said was so accurate. And I I grew up just kind of like thinking John Calvin was just a terrible person, but there's a lot of good things that he said. This was really interesting. As we're trying to reform the problems of what was going on there in the 1500s, listen carefully to what he writes here, and I'll try to hone in on a couple of things that he says. You have to work through some of the older English, but I think you'll be okay. He says, as he writes this to Emperor Charles V, He says, moreover, the rule which distinguishes between pure and vitated worship is of universal application in order that we may not adopt any device which seems fit to ourselves, but look to the injunction of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. I already love the beginning. You don't get to decide what you want to do as your device for worship. We must look to the one who prescribes to determine the way that we are to worship. Therefore, if we would have him approve our worship, this rule, which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. For there is a twofold reason why the Lord, in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship, requires us to give obedience only to his voice. First, it tends greatly to establish his authority that we do not follow our own pleasures, but depend entirely on his sovereignty. And secondly, such is our folly that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. And then when once we have turned aside from the right path, there is no end to our wanderings until we get buried under a multitude of superstitions. Justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do. And at once reject all human devices which are at variance with his command. Justly too does he, in express terms, define our limits that we may not by fabricating perverse modes of worship provoke his anger against us. I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. (laughs) He had that problem in 1543. (laughs) I understand how hard it is to tell people you have to do what God says and you can't come up with whatever you want. That's great. The opposite persuasion which cleaves to them being seated as it were in their very bones and marrow is that whatever they do has in itself a sufficient sanction provided it exhibits some kind of zeal in the honor of God. As long as somehow it's some kind of zeal toward God, it must be okay. That's what John says is not right. But since God not only regards as fruitless but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship, if at variance with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? The words of God are clear and distinct. 
Obedience is better than sacrifice. In vain do they worship me, teaching the, for doctrines the commandments of men. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love for the religious world to go hear John Calvin with that. Because that's exactly what God was teaching here. You don't get to worship God however you want to worship God. We need to have a holy reverence for God when we approach Him. That there should be the sense of awe and respect as if we were Esther coming before King Ahasuerus and that the only reason we can approach the throne of God is by His mercy and grace. You just don't get to walk in the throne of God and go, well, I'll just do whatever I want to do and it'll be okay. And yet so often that is the approach. And so here is God directly driving at that. In fact, it is so strong that he says there in verse 5, that I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the gener- of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And I hope you'll notice that he connects that to false worship. That we hate God if we are not doing things the way that he has prescribed. In fact, it's idolatry. It is the rejection of God's ways and saying that my ways are supreme. We discussed that a little bit this morning when we and just said, well, there's no problem with idolatry today, right? It is idolatry when we put our desires of how we want to approach God and how we want to worship God ahead of what He's directly prescribed. And that's the picture that, that God is giving us here, is that we are choosing ourselves and our desires over Him. And God warns of the effect of that, where He says that's going to reach to the third and the fourth generation. Now, that has caused people trouble, so let's talk about that just for a minute. We know the scriptures tell us, like in Deuteronomy 24.16, as well in Ezekiel 18.20, that the children are not going to be held accountable for the sins of the father, that they're not going to be put to death for that. So there's one aspect that we recognize, and that's part of the answer of what God means, is one, of course, is the legacy of sin, that we recognize that the effects of sin and the ripples of sin continue for generation and generation. It's not hard for us to see that perhaps in your own family or in people that you know, where one individual sin causes problems for the lives of generation after generation after generation. The effect of sin is that way. But God is much more speaking in a corporate sense here when he says these things. Now what God is saying is, you might have the next generation come along and they might do all that they can to try to restore and follow the ways of God, but judgment's going to fall because of the sins that had been previously committed. Boy, that is certainly no truer than things that we see today. As the generations are moving on and to recognize that the sins of the past are now the problems of the present, which will bring the judgment on the future. And that's all that God was getting at here is what is being done today may not bring a national judgment today, but it will be visited at some point. That time will come. And the choices that we make in how we worship God and how we approach God and what we are doing with God will radically change the course of what will happen, not only for us as individuals, but even for a nation itself. And so God gave that warning and reminded them that they would be paying for the sins of the past generation, that that would come upon them. And so we see that even with the future that lies ahead of us as well. 
But I want you to end with the end of verse 6 because you can't put the period right there. God wasn't done. Look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. What God does here is so powerful because here is God saying, yes, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers and the children for many generations. And then here's God saying, but I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations. Here is a picture of God's grace and mercy able to overcome the iniquities of those who have been committed in the past. It is so fascinating that God does not say, but I will show steadfast love to the third and the fourth generation. Notice the contrast. He says, I'll bring the visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation, but my steadfast love will be shown for thousands of generations. It is an, a picture then how far reaching the love of God is, how far reaching the mercy of God is. And the point that God is making here is that his steadfast love and his covenant would always be available to those who would turn to him. Even as the sins are being given and the judgments are being passed, those who would turn to the Lord, there is hope. And that God would always have that offer. And so that is how we wrap up in looking at the second commandment, is observing how God's covenant is always available. And that is the very picture of who Jesus is. That Jesus comes to the earth and He is then the representation of the righteousness of God. He is the display of God's covenant faithful love. That for thousands of generations... People have disobeyed God, have not worshipped Him right, have stood in rebellion to Him. And yet even still in the face of that, through Israel's rejection and Gentile sin, Jesus comes. That is the loving faithfulness of God. That's what Romans 3 is describing. This is the righteousness of God that's been displayed as Jesus is put forward as a sacrifice of atonement for us. This is the hope that we have is that we are able to love the Lord and we are able to worship Him the way that He chooses. Thankful that we're even allowed to approach the throne of grace at all because of God's faithfulness. There is not a single generation who has a right to stand before God and say, I belong here. All of us are deserving of that wrath. And yet God says to thousands and thousands and thousands, I will continue to show my faithful love. I will continue to show hope. I will continue to show mercy and grace. And that is what we see in Christ. And that is the hope that's given through what even God commands in the second commandment. That His steadfast love would continue on for those who would love Him and those who would keep His commands. Let's sing a song now. We're going to invite you to come to Jesus. And as we prepare to sing that song, to just consider for all of the false worship and all of the hatred toward God and all of the rebellion. And it becomes an amazing place to sit and look at God and consider that He would continue to be faithful to His promises. Still send a Savior.
knowing that every single person would never do what he said. And yet he sends him anyway to die for sins so that we would stand back and be amazed at the vastness and majesty and splendor of God who would create this world the way that he did and love us to such a degree that he says, I'll send my son and I'll love you so much that I don't want to share you with anybody else. Desire God alone and do not chase after the things that are seen and the things that can be touched. Your God loves you and desires you to love him with all of your heart. Will you turn away from a life of sin? Will you turn to the Lord with all of your heart and serve Him and follow Him faithfully all of the days? You have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That is where you begin your relationship with Jesus. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?